So James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This is God's word. You can sit down. Let's pray and ask for the Spirit's help. Lord, in so many ways, in your word, you, you show us what it, what it means to endure. And Lord, you, you even recognize what our questions are. You recognize our complaints before we're even born. And your wisdom, and your sovereignty, and your providence, you see us, you know us, and you respond to our questions in your word with the gentleness of a father. Help us to see that today. Help us to see your love for us, Lord, in your word. In Christ's name, amen. One of the uh, big questions of the faith that has been a question for centuries and centuries and centuries is how can God be just and at the same time put people in situations where he knows that they will sin? You think, well, I've never asked that question before. Well, you have because there are modern, there are modern twists to this question, how, how can God create a young man with more effeminate characteristics and then say that homosexuality is sinful? Why does God make mothers more caring and concerned and then say that anxiety is sinful? Why is it that the same characteristics that make men strong leaders also contribute to anger and violence and abusive controlling behavior? Or as we've been seeing in James's teaching on trials in chapter 1, why does God put people in situations of poverty and then say that discontentment and covetousness, craving for more, is sinful? After all, God puts us in these situations. We just sang this. God puts us in these situations knowing what is in our hearts. Is that unjust of him? Is that cruel of him? If we were to mine our way all the way down to, the, to, to the, the core of this issue, we would end up with this broader inquiry. How can it be that God is sovereign over all of our circumstances, and yet we're held accountable for our thoughts and our emotions and our reactions to those circumstances? And he made us. 
Well, James answers that burning question for us this week in three sections. You don't normally get three uh, alliterated sections from me, so enjoy it while you can. Here they are. The purpose of God's promise, section one. Part two, the source of our sin. And three, the goodness of God's gifts. The purpose of God's promise, the source of our sin, and the goodness of God's gifts. So the first part, the purpose of God's promise, we see this in verse 12. Look at verse 12 with me. The promise that we see in verse 12 is, is, comes a little bit later in the passage, but you see there it is the promise of the crown of life. James is using a, an athletic competition as a metaphor for the Christian life. This crown of life is awarded to those who endure the trial, who finish the race. The crown here is a stand-in for what we usually see described in the Scriptures as eternal life. God promises eternal life to those who love Him. So you see it in verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, there it is, which God has promised to those who love Him. There is a lot packed into this. But we have to unravel a little bit to get to the, to the core of it. What I want you to see, what I, want you to show, what I want to show you, is that the logical foundation of this passage is, is bound up in that promise. The reason we seek to remain steadfast is at the end of the passage, God's promise to those that love him. Now, who are those that love him? Well, true Christians. There's more to it. How is it? that Christians come to love him. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. So those who love God, defining our terms here, those who love God are responding to God's love for us that was made manifest in Jesus Christ. So, So the order of loving is this. God loves his people. He sends Jesus for them. Jesus shows God's love through his death in order to kill the power of sin And then he's raised up from the dead to conquer death. And God promises through Jesus' teaching that all who are united to Christ in faith will also conquer death. We receive the crown of life. Those whom God has loved hear this truth. They're given the Holy Spirit and so respond in faith in Christ and love for God as their loving Father and merciful Redeemer. And so... They live now in Christ. They live in the hope that God's promise is true. That we will conquer death and receive eternal life. All of that is packed into the four-word statement, those who love him. That's, that's one thing that we're, that we're going to find in James is James will use four words to describe something that Paul uses four chapters for. And so... You're going to maybe be frustrated with me a little bit sometimes as we're going through James, but in order to, to unpack what he's saying, we have to sometimes go elsewhere in the Scriptures. So all of that is packed there in that four-word statement, those who love him. So then the characteristic of those who love God is one underlying truth. They trust God. They trust that God has shown them his love and mercy in Christ. Christians trust that God is good because we, he has given us his son. Right? 
Let's keep going. They trust, we trust as Christians that God is faithful and true to his promises. After all, the gift of his son was promised all the way back in Genesis. That promise was repeated again and again to God's people throughout history. And the arrival of the son of God proved that God is faithful to keep his promises. Now, does that describe you? Someone who believes those things. Do you believe that the very nature of God is seen in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that Jesus' arrival in the world two millennia ago proved that God is faithful to his promises? Do you believe, and this is getting to the passage again, do you believe he will also be faithful to his promise of eternal life for those who love him? Because that's, that's the kicker. If you trust in God's faithfulness to his promises, then you trust him because you know that he loves you. And if you know that God loves you, then you also love him. And so you receive his testing, going back to verse 4 with pure joy, or verse 2 with pure joy. God tests those who love him, those who are in Christ. God tests them. He tests his people. He gives them trials to endure in order to strengthen their faith create perseverance in them so that they endure to the end so that they may receive the promised crown of life. And all of this first chapter of James is making that argument. And if you miss it, you'll miss what James is doing for the entire letter. Because all of the rest of this, the letter of James is, is a description of the various ways that our hearts reveal what is truly in them when we're undergoing God's refining process, his sanctification process. Trials, what we're seeing here, are like, they're like magic glasses. We go through a trial, we put on the glasses, oh, that's in me? That sin is still in me? So, so the Lord says, here's a season of difficulty, sickness, poverty, trouble in, at, at work, difficulty in your marriage, whatever it is, and here is your response, grumbling, complaining, lashing out at other people. And the Christian response is supposed to be repentance for those things and faith. Lord, thank you for revealing to me the ways that my heart is not devoted to you. Forgive me. Help me to turn from my sin and trust in Christ. In other words, God, God's testing, God's testing, the trial is the means through which he is purging our love for sin, creating in us a greater love for Christ, a greater dependence on Christ's work for us. And those who endure this testing, James says, are living the blessed life. The blessed life, because this is not how Joel Osteen defines the blessed life, is it? Blessed is the man. Now, have you heard this before? It's the exact same language we find in Psalm 1. It's the same language that, that Dustin read for us earlier. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of wicked. Jesus uses this blessed is the man language. We find it in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers and so on. And in each of these Beatitudes of Jesus, you have a reason. Blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Same formula here that this idea of blessedness, some translate it as happiness. This is a state of being. Not a physical blessing, per se, that will be received in the future, but it's a current state of being. Blessed is this person who's enduring trials. For 
When he has endured the trials, when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised. So the grounding for your current state of blessedness, your current state of happiness, is that you trust God's promises. You believe what God has said. You believe that you will receive the crown of life. You have the hope of eternal life because God promised it. God promised eternal life to those who love him. And so, God's word, God's promise motivates you to endure the tests. Does this sound like a circular argument? It's not a circular argument, it's a cycle of living. It's the Christian life. God's promise of eternal life motivates you to endure the tests that God sends because you're looking forward to the crown of life. And in this life, in that cycle that you're enduring, you live in this blessed state of being, this happy, contented life. Even in trials. The purpose of God's promise, then, is twofold. To reward the one who endures to the end. And secondly, to motivate two true Christians to endure. So it's a reward and it's a motivation. A reward in the end, a motivation in this life. Now contrast that to the second part of this passage, the source of our sin. Look at verses 13 through 16. Now as we get into this, there is a little bit of a translation issue here in verse 13. Because in the Greek language that this was originally written in, the word for tempting or temptation and the word for trial or testing is the same word. The translation, how we translate it into English, depends on the context. So when it involves enticement to sin, we nearly always translate it as tempting. So in Galatians 6.1, when, when Paul says, Restore a brother who is caught in sin, he also says, Keep watch so that you are not also tempted. Same word, tempted. But in 2 Corinthians 13, the exact same word is used, but there Paul uses it to say, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Same word. Clearly, Paul is not saying in 2 Corinthians to tempt yourself. That this is not an instruction to tempt yourselves, but rather to test. Same word, but it's a different context. Therefore, different translation. The context determines how we translate the word into the English language. Verse 13 is tricky, though, because we have here that Greek word that can mean tested or tempted. And so here's what our ESV Bible translation says, the one that we normally rely on here. Um, it says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And while that's certainly a true statement, we're not tempted by God, it does not take into consideration this ongoing exhortation about trials and testing. So the, the Christian Standard Bible, the one written by the Southern Baptists, takes that context into consideration and translates it like this. Let me, let me read it for you. I don't have it on the screen, but James 1.13 in the CSB says, No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. Do you see the difference? And I think, that, I think that's getting at what James is doing here. See, it connects the subject of trials from God that we've been studying in verses 2 through 12. 
And so what, what James is doing is saying his overall argument is this, just starting from verse 2 going on. Verse 2, look, God is going to send his people trials to strengthen them so they can endure to the end. And then verse 5, you're going to need wisdom from God to endure these trials. And then verses 9 and 10, poverty and wealth are examples of trials that require wisdom. And then verse 12, blessed is the one who is enduring these trials from God. And then verse 13, but listen now, this is where we slow down, listen now, when you are undergoing these trials from God and you begin to find yourself tempted to sin, don't you dare blame God. This gets us to that original question that we asked at the beginning of the sermon, doesn't it? Whether or not our temptation in trials, whether or not that's from God. James here says, no. The temptation is not from God. The trials are from God. The temptation is from you. We'll get there. But first of all, in verse 13, he says, God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself tempts no one. So, so he's first of all saying it would be absurd to say that the temptation comes from God. That's not of God. That's, that's apart from his nature. The gist here is that God is holy and pure all the way through. God is holy, holy. Temptation to sin is not from God because he cannot tempt us to evil. It is opposed to his very nature to tempt. Temptation from God would be like dryness from rain. It would be like saying, we received five inches of rain on Friday, and the rain drained the reservoirs and dried up the trees and the grasses, and now everything is like a desert. It's absurd. Wetness and water are in the very nature of rain. Goodness is in the very nature of God. God cannot send temptation any more than rains can send dryness. It is nonsensical. And some of you at this point are going, Hold on a minute. Wasn't Jesus led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit in order to be tempted? And the short answer is that God did test Jesus, yes. Jesus endured multiple tests that were preparing him for the ultimate test of the cross. And yes, the devil did tempt Jesus. If you go back to Matthew 4, you will see the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The, the devil did tempt Jesus, and Jesus endured real and actual true temptation. What the devil meant for evil, temptation, God meant for good, testing preparation, teaching Jesus to rely more and more on the Spirit and less and less on his own flesh. Could Jesus have sinned when he was there in the wilderness? No, he could not have sinned. But did Jesus suffer under the temptations from the devil? He did. And that's how Hebrews can say that Jesus has endured temptation and, and so can identify with you in your temptation. That is an a very small portion of what would be a very big book of an answer. Okay, so if you want more on this subject, go back and listen to the December 23rd of 2018 sermon uh, for, about Jesus' testing in the wilderness from Matthew chapter 4. Not many of you were, were here then, but um, you can go back and listen. It's not a very Christmassy sermon, uh, but it is our Christmas sermon in 2018. So, so back to our text today. Temptation is, is not from God. That's, 
That, that's James's main point. Your temptation is not coming from God. So we think, okay, so where does it come from? Because the, the trial's from God. I'm experiencing temptation in the midst of the trial. The trial's from God. Where does this temptation come from? Well, the source of our temptation, the source of our sin, is in our own hearts. Look at verse 14. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Temptation describes the process of the luring and enticing of our desires. So it's not the website that's tempting you. It's not that other person that is tempting to sin, tempting you to sin against them. It is your desire that tempts you. The, the, the desires within you are what lead you to, to your temptations. Our desires lure us and entice us. It's right there in the text. And this, this, this language that James is using is, is hunting and fishing language. You lure your prey with bait, and the bait looks good, and it looks safe. And then you draw them in with the hook or the trap. But the tempter, the one luring you, is your own desires. Look at this. You deserve this. You really need this. You've earned this. And then you begin to imagine what it, what it would be like to have that object of your desire or to, to experience that feeling of pleasure or to realize the, the satisfaction of releasing that anger. That's the temptation. It is not the case that the devil is always around you, following you around, omnisciently luring you with all sorts of different temptations. Don't say, the devil made me do it, or the devil led me to do it, or the devil was tempting me to do it. No, the devil doesn't have to tempt you. Your own evil desires will do that work for him. Once the devil in the form of the serpent captured the heart of Adam in the garden, all of Adam's progeny, you and me, all of us are born with corrupted desires. And so our desires do the devil's work for him. You are the source of your own temptations. Your desires are leading you to sin. So before we even get to verse 15, we are already getting a glimpse at this very New Testament idea that the desires within us are not morally neutral. It is, is not the case that all is well so long as I don't act on my desires. Let me say that again. It is not the case that all is well so long as I don't act on my evil desires. There is such a thing within the heart even of a Christian, there is such a thing as an evil desire. In fact, any desire in you that leads you to outward sin is inherently a sinful desire. The desire to elevate yourself above others, that's an evil desire. We call that pride. And that pride, which is already 
an evil desire, leads to the outward sins of putting others down and gossiping and bragging and lying about yourself. The desire to have someone who is not your spouse, what do we call it? We call that lust. And lust leads to fornication and adultery and watching pornography, all sorts of outward actions that result from an inward evil desire. Desire for more than you will ever need, that's also evil. We call that greed. And greed leads to the worship of money and and it leads to selfishness. It leads to hoarding. Sexual desire for someone of the same sex, even if you don't act on that desire, falls into this same category. Evil desires. Jesus made this observation. This is not new teaching. Jesus made this observation in his Sermon on the Mount when he taught us it's not just murder that makes us liable to judgment, but the desire to murder, the anger in our hearts. And it's not just adultery that is sinful, but the lustful desire for adultery. And Jesus was not being innovative when he taught that. He was just exegeting the Ten Commandments. He's drawing out the implications of the Ten Commandments. The Seventh Commandment says this, do not commit adultery. The Eighth Commandment says, do not steal. But that's not all. The Tenth Commandment says, do not covet. In other words, in your hearts, do not desire your neighbor's wife. So don't commit adultery. Don't want to. And in your hearts, do not desire his stuff. So don't steal. Don't want to. Desire, which leads to sin, is corrupted desire. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.11 that these evil desires are waging war against your soul. Paul says the same thing in Galatians 5. The desires of the flesh are against the desires of the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the desires of the flesh. They are opposed to one another. Ephesians 4.22 says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. That, that, That makes a whole lot of light out of what James is teaching us here, doesn't it? There is something in you. There's something in me, something that belongs to who we are. It's a part of you and me, and it's luring and enticing us to sin. So what do we do about it? Paul in Colossians 3 says, put it to death. Colossians 3, 5, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Put it to death. Okay, dust it all, put it to death. What, how do we do that? What does that even mean? Well, here's, here's one of the, let's get practical for a moment. As you mature in the faith, you will come to realize how this works in your soul. If you're a Christian, if you're truly in Christ, you will begin to see these competing desires play out. In fact, over the course of your Christian life, trials and testing will have the effect of revealing where these desires are in your heart and and what causes them to get stirred up. So let's take into consideration some evil desire that you know you're prone to. I'll just speak personally. The desire to control other people. Maybe you struggle with this. Maybe you don't. If you're an oldest child, you live and breathe this. If you're a youngest child, 
You don't really care about what other people are doing. That doesn't excuse it, though. That's, that's, and we're going to get to that. It's, it's a desire, though, that, that you are likely going to have to fight against if you have this desire. Now, suppose you are one of those people that likes to control other people. And suppose your spouse is doing something that is outside of what you want them to do. So they're driving, you're in the passenger seat, and they took a route that they like rather than the route that you prefer. They have done something outside of your control. Now, if you know because of past trials that in your flesh, from that prideful corner of your heart, there is desire to control others that dwells within you, you now have a choice to make. Will I give that evil desire a voice in my heart? Will I let it speak? Because if you let that voice speak, you're going to be lured in by that deceptive rationalization of that voice, and you will end up persuaded by that desire to control, and so you will conclude that your spouse took this route to intentionally irritate you, and somehow they're out to get you today. And here we go, right? Now that you've given, now you've listened to that voice, you're persuaded, and it's time to let them have it for something that they did that was totally innocent. That's choice number one. Give your evil desire the microphone in your heart. Or, or do you instead choose not to give that desire a voice in your heart and go instead with a superior desire? A desire from the Holy Spirit within you. The desire to love your spouse. Here's the thing. For Christians, because you are in union with Christ, his cross has already given you power over that evil desire. You already have that in Christ. That is the privilege that we have as Christians. So, you have a choice that you didn't have before you were born again. Now you can choose to listen to the desires of the Spirit in you rather than the corrupted flesh. And once you choose to love your spouse and to trust that they love you and ignore the fact that they just like stoplights, then your desire to control them, <laughs> your desire to control them is cut off. Okay? Because you are, you are thinking, you're interpreting that event through a better desire, a Holy Spirit desire, rather than the desires of the flesh. You're laughing because you've all been there, haven't you? I wanted to do a mundane experience to show you how even in the mundane things of life, our sin nature comes out. We tend to think of sin as, oh, he's doing heroin. Oh, he's looking at pornography. Oh, he killed somebody. No, just it's the same thing. That, that desire to control someone is the same that the flesh within you. The, the deceptive nature of that sin is it tells you it's not a big deal. But it is a big deal because you are competing with the Holy Spirit in you. So as you keep doing this as a Christian, as you're growing in Christ, as you, you're choosing to put off the old self that would get grumpy about those things and put on the new self, put on Christ, and as you choose to walk by the Spirit instead of the flesh, the influence of that evil desire is weakened within you. It loses power over you as you more and more live in the power of the cross. 
And here's the thing, if we don't fight against those corrupt desires, if we don't put them to death, if we make excuses for our evil desires and accommodate the desires of the flesh, well, then those desires begin to rule over you rather than Christ ruling in your heart. That's what we see in verse 15. Each person's tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then verse 15, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The imagery here is very sensual. James is alluding to that picture that we see in Proverbs 2. That the desires in us are like the forbidden seductive woman who lures and entices and convinces us that it's going to be okay. You deserve this. You'll enjoy this. Nobody's going to get hurt. And once you embrace lady desire, she conceives and she gives birth to baby sin. And this little bastard sin baby grows up into a hideous monster who who rules over you and brings forth death and destruction everywhere in your life. James's language is helpful because it shows us that what we, what we see everywhere else in the New Testament. The desire that leads to sin isn't neutral. It's evil. It's not to be accommodated. If we follow James's metaphor to its fullness, and we understand that this desire within us is like the Proverbs 2 seductress, then we draw some very practical conclusions. So if you know what being around her leads to, you know what she wants from you, you would not then say to your spouse, well, I'm only, I'm just texting her, or I'm just getting a coffee with her, or I'm only taking her out to dinner, or I'm only spending the night, nothing's going to happen. Now, if you know what's good for your marriage, you would cut off all ties with that person. And that's consistent with Scripture. Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You are married to Christ, Christian. You are in union with Christ. So don't flirt with your old desires. As those that you know will draw you from Christ. James puts it simply in verse 16, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. There's a lot. There's a lot in there. Don't be deceived. He's saying this, knowing that it is our own sinful desires that lead us into sin, we have no excuse to let our desires deceive us. And what are the ways that we let our desires deceive us? Well, we pretend... We pretend that, that they're excusable. We make excuses for them. Let me give you a list of excuses. You could probably come up with many more. Well, this is just the way I was raised. Or this, I'm this way because I was abused. Or I'm just like this because my dad left my family when I was young. Or I'm just controlling because I'm a firstborn. I, I'm like this because I'm the baby of the family. I'm like this because I'm poor. I'm like this because I'm rich. It's my hormones. Or I've been diagnosed with this psychological issue so I'm not responsible for my sin. It's because I didn't take my medications today. 
I'm, now insert any ethnicity in the world, I'm this, and that's just how our culture is. Or, I wouldn't have said that to her if she had not said that to me. All of those, what are those? Those are millions of justifications that we can come up with, and we are very creative. We can come up with all sorts of deceptions to make accommodations for sinful desires within us. James says, don't be deceived. Because listen, Christian, if you're a Christian, you don't have to justify yourself. You don't have to justify your sin. Why? Because you've already been justified before God by Jesus Christ. So now you have freedom, the freedom to recognize this is a sinful desire in me. This is destructive. This leads me to sin. So I'm going to ask the Lord now to help me destroy that and move on in freedom in Christ. So don't be deceived. The word deception here in verse 16 is really important because what it is is it's an echo of the original sin. The original sin was conceived in deception, wasn't it? So, so here we are with the deception, and it's also a bridge to the next section we'll get to in a minute. But, but think of that first sin. Eve was deceived in the garden. She was without sin prior to that. She did not have the sin nature that we have received from her husband. She did not have corrupted desires within her. So Satan, from the outside, had to lure her and, and, and entice her. And Satan persuaded the woman, God's not to be trusted. That God is not good. His, his gifts are not good. He has forbidden that tree of knowledge of good and evil for his own selfish reasons. Because he, he, doesn't, he doesn't want you to have equality with him. Satan did to Eve what desires that dwell within us do to us. He deceived her. So James says, don't be deceived. Don't be, de don't be lured. Don't be enticed by desire like Eve was. Don't be lured and enticed by the devil. And also, and here's the, 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 the bridge to section three, don't be deceived into thinking that what God gives us is bad or evil. That was the trick of the devil. He, the, the testing that Eve under, underwent in the garden that the command was not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was a good test from God. He was teaching Adam and Eve to love him and trust him and rely on him. And he was teaching them there's nothing better in, in all of creation than to, to love me and to be with me. But Eve was deceived into believing that God's testing, his training regiment for her was somehow bad. And so James is saying the same thing to us. Don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. God's gifts are good. This is where we get to section three. God's gifts are good. Even the testing that God ordains for us is good. The trials that God sends our way are for our good. Look at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. This is a very poetic way of teaching theology. So who is God? James says he's the creator of all things, including the highest things, the lights of the heavens. The father of lights, he's, he created the lights in the heavens, the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all the planets. He's not like we are. 
we are below the lights. And so we are affected by the lights. We cast changing shadows due to the movements of the earth in relation to the sun. God is outside of all of that. He never changes. His character never changes. And all of his gifts, including the trials he sends, are always good with no mixture of evil. So what, what makes a good gift good? Heck, when we see this, we think, okay, what makes it, what makes it good? Why, why is what God gives us good? Have you thought about what makes a good gift good? Some of you haven't, and you're terrible at Christmas shopping. But when, but when you are Christmas shopping for someone, and your desire is to get the perfect gift for, for them, they're, they're a criterion you can use. If you don't have one, you're, you're going, if you don't have a, a standard for what is good, you're going to go to the, to the, the, the tin of three flavors of popcorn, and nothing says, I did not think very hard about this gift, like a tin of popcorn. But when you're giving a gift to someone, you're looking for something that is useful to them. You're looking for something that they will enjoy. And you're looking for something that, that they cannot or would not get for themselves. Right? So if you need tips, husbands, write these down. Something that is useful, something that she will enjoy, and something that she cannot or would not get for herself. All right? If your gift checks all three of those criteria, it's probably going to be a good gift. God's gifts to us are perfectly good. He gives us exactly what we need, when we need it, and it's something we would not or could not get for ourselves. Most of all, God's gifts to us have the intention of bringing greater delight in Him as the giver of gifts. So, so here's the point of this. This is what James is getting at. Trials match that description. They match the criteria of what makes a good gift good. Trials don't lead us to sin. That's not the intention of the gift of trials. That's not God's desire when he sends us trials. What, does God's, what is God's desire? We see it in verse 18. Look at verse 18. Of his own will, and will there, that word is very similar to the word for desire. So of God's own desire, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So our desire, this James is giving us a contrast, our corrupted desire brings forth sin and sin brings forth death. God's perfect and holy desire, his will brings forth what? You see it? Of his will he brought us forth by the word of truth. This is new birth language. By the word of truth, that's James's way of describing the gospel. When we heard the gospel, the word of truth about Jesus... God caused us to be born again into Christ. So, so God is sovereign over our salvation. Do you see that there? He's ordained our salvation. He's caused our salvation. Why? That we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What he means by that is the, 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 those, those who have been, by God's will, born again into Christ are the beginning of the new creation. We are the first fruits to ripen in the new crop. We are God's evidence to all of creation that God is reconciling all things to himself through Christ. That means God is creating a people who honor him as Lord. And, and being born again as new creation humans, because of Christ's work on the cross, we are not beholden to the desires of the flesh anymore. 
So now we have the ability in Christ through the Spirit to live according to the Spirit. And our testing then, our trials are leading us more and more to live according to the Spirit and the Spirit's desires within us rather than our old desires. And what is that? What He's creating us to be like Christ, the first fruits for all creation to see. God is prompting us through the good gifts of trials to experience the greater joy of delighting in Him, living in obedience to Him, being His children. So what James is saying is trials are not pushing you towards temptation. The trials are pushing us towards Christ. And the the end result is that the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. That's God's will. Verse 18. So let's go back and look at the question. How can it be that God is the author of our salvation and he wills and ordains the trials that we undergo and yet we're held accountable for our thoughts and our emotions and our reactions to those circumstances and our desires and our sin? The answer is this. God is saving us from our sin. Even though he's caused us to be born again into Christ, the flesh still remains. Look, this is not a glorified body. The flesh, Adam's flesh still remains. And we know that it's still here because we, we see it. We feel it in the desires of the flesh which wage war against our soul. And here's the issue. The very refining that you and I need to diminish the influence of these desires, that refining comes from trials. Trials are a means of grace from God to purge the sin that remains in you, to move us toward Christ and teach us to trust Christ and love him all the more, which takes us back to verse 12. This is blessedness. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. If you're enduring a trial right now, and based on James's very loose definition of trials, you all are, but some are more difficult than others, listen. God doesn't hate you. If there is one message that James chapter 1 is just pounding into our hearts, that's it. God is not the author of sin. Through the work of Christ, God in his love for you has brought you forth from bondage to sin from being ruled by your desires, condemned to hell. You were destroying yourself. And he's forgiven you, and he's given you his very own spirit, and he's teaching you to rely on the spirit and to live according to your new birth in Christ. That's not hatred. That is the love of God manifest even in your trials. So, live in the freedom of Christ. 
Live in the hope of receiving the crown of life and trust his promises and your trials would be a blessing. Let's pray.